You have located Geekfest Rants, the entertainment podcast for genre geeks like you. Shall we play a game? Covering the world of vintage and current film and television since 2010. Game over, man. Game over. Featuring in-depth conversations on sci-fi, horror, fantasy, comics, toys, and conventions. So say we all. So say we all. And now sit back, relax, and enjoy today's show. visual effects create the magic that makes people want to go to the movies movies are special effects we start with an empty frame anything is possible as audiences see through the illusion the bar just raises how do we do this now how do we make this look great i leave it to the genius of the ilm it's right there in the name industrial light and magic the history of ILM goes way back. When I was writing Star Wars, there were no special effects houses in the world. So how are we going to do the effects? I realized that I was going to have to start a company. We didn't really know what we were doing. We were not movie people. George wanted a bunch of guys who didn't know what was impossible. We were departing from convention. We had to build equipment from scratch. This was a long shot. We make it look like a professional movie instead of a bunch of kids having fun. We realized nothing is impossible. There was just something here about the people. Suddenly, everybody wants to come to ILM. We were trying to do things that have never been done before. Oh, I don't know. I'm making this up as I go. They're pushing technology forward. There's so many innovations that ILM made. Digital editing, computer graphics. We developed Pixar to be a cartoon company. One thing led to another. It turned into Photoshop. Now you could manipulate images. Visual effects would never be the same again. I remember that incredible feeling when all you've got is an idea. It was so exciting. I want to work with people that inspire me. That is the spirit of ILM. It goes back to that original group that were unpretentious, brilliant people. That was our family. We enjoyed each other's company. Yes, we water-slided. Yes, we were immature. But nobody worked harder. We were the Rebel Alliance. Hello, everybody, and welcome once again to GeekFest Rants. My name is Carlos Perone. Today we are returning to the subject of Star Wars themed documentaries. The particular one we're going to talk about today is an ILM, Disney Plus documentary, called Light and Magic. This was put out a number of months ago and I've watched it a number of times to prepare for this review of it. It is a very, very good documentary. I can't wait for you guys to get a chance to look at it. Obviously. You need to have Disney Plus, but hopefully you can get your hands on it somehow. Maybe one day they'll put it out as a DVD or, you know, for sale or something like that. Because it is it is very good at cataloging the history of ILM in a format that is more expansive than ever before. We did the review a couple of shows ago of that other, you know, documentary uh, that dealt with Lucas in its entirety, not just the ILM part, but the entire 
beginning of the you know the shooting of the film and all that other material having to do with the film the behind the scenes the Marshall Lucas interviews all that stuff but this one particularly focuses on ILM which is a subject that is very dear to my uh, fandom and for a lot of us fanboys that have been following ILM since its initial you know late 70s development into the 80s which is when I really really went you know, deep, deep into it. And in the past, they've put out ILM books, you know, the, the the art of special effects. You know, there's a couple of books out there, I remember, that I got back in the 80s. They were the definitive. They were the actual definitive. This is the top of the line, you know, way of chronicling ILM. And I believe they put a third book at one point. I, I might have it somewhere. I don't even know if I ever read it because it was all about more having to do with the digital side of ILM. But this time around, they actually put it in a, you know, television film format where they interview so many of the the main characters uh, that you've seen through the history of ILM. And it's, it's a great, absolutely fantastic documentary. So let's get started. Television is an amusement park. Television is a circus, a carnival, a traveling troupe of acrobats, storytellers, dancers, singers, jugglers, sideshow freaks, lion tamers, and football players. We're in the boredom killing business. Light and Magic. This is another six part documentary. This time around, it's on Disney Plus. It is directed by Howard Kazanjian and it's produced by Ron Howard. It's interesting that it's directed by Howard Kazanjian because, again, during the previous documentary, there were a lot of things that were said that were kind of like, oh, wow, they're actually going there with, you know, that topic or that statement. And Howard Kazanjian was responsible for a few of them. And the fact that they tap him to direct this documentary, when he kind of gives you the impression that he might be on the outs with George Lucas. Now, one of the things to keep in mind is that this is primarily about ILM, but we will kind of go through the history of how that company was formed and the different projects they worked on and how they got to where they are today. The documentary begins primarily with George Lucas, obviously. This is his baby. And they talk about the fact that the reason he formed Industrial Light of Magic is because when he was planning out Star Wars, he didn't have not only the means to do those special effects, the existing studios didn't have the means to create those special effects. He talks about 2001 being an inspiration for the type of effects he would want to achieve visually in terms of what these ships look like in the environment where they are, but he wanted them to be a little more kinetic, to be you know, action-y, to be fighting, having dogfights with spaceships in the same manner that you would have, you know, with a World War II film. Up to that point, all they really had was the old, you know, Buck Rogers putting model ships on wires and just kind of having them move around, you know, on a background. But that usually looked really bad. Plus, historically, they have been able, like I said before, to create some pretty good-looking ships on some movies even like if you think of like a war of the worlds you know granted you know they're pretty well made you can barely see the uh the wires holding them together but they're moving really slow and that is the thing that lucas wanted to 
get past, get past the slow-moving, dark-only type of effects to be able to hide things so that you can actually see some movement to kind of feel the excitement of the more traditional World War II films. The documentary will highlight some of the top talents, the key people, the key players of Industrial Light and Magic, beginning with John Dykstra. His previous claim to fame was the movie Silent Running, uh, where they, you know there was a lot of miniature work done for that. But in this litany of artists, you'll get profiles on Richard Endland, Joe Johnston, Lauren Peterson, Phil Tippett, Dennis Murin, and Ken Ralston. Now, those last three specifically talk about how you know them growing up and seeing movies like King Kong and Ray Harryhausen you know Sinbad films all that stop motion stuff how that influenced their their lives and their pursuit in special effects filmmaking techniques some names are not going to be featured as prominent and it's it's unusual and I'm not sure why for example John Berg I, I didn't remember seeing too much about John Berg there are a couple of names that I will come up with uh, every now and then that it's not that they're minimized, but it's kind of like maybe, maybe they didn't have enough time to, to dive deep into some of these other people. Steve Galway, Bruce Nicholson. You know, there's there's a lot of people that it's like, oh, wait, what about this guy? What about that guy? You know, that kind of stuff. Once again, the goal was to create special effects, you know, spaceship dogfights similar to World War II. And in order to do this, the theory was that if they could create a motion control camera, and apparently they had motion control cameras before, but never this advanced, where they could do like multiple passes and computer control motion control, that they would have to kind of create these cameras from scratch. And they were able to, you know, get uh, these older cameras and modify them and then, you know, come up with a rig to be able to mount your model, you know, and have a computer controlling that model, you know, that that's the thing that they completely were super innovative about. Then they would have to also have an optical printer, something that will sandwich all these images together in a good way to, you know, to form the effect. The final product that uh, John Dykstra came up with was called the Dykstra Flex. It's a camera, and it's the special kind of camera that would be able to capture these sort of effects. They used old VistaVision format cameras that were kind of obsolete at that time, but they were able to modify them because the negative kind of goes sideways so they can have a larger negative, a, a, a wider space to be able to work with as far as shooting and printing. So one of the things they kind of go through is the development of certain iconic ships like the Falcon where uh, Joe Johnston is giving credit for it, even though we all know from reading the other books that there's so many people participating in that that you can't really credit one person. But kind of, yeah, I mean, again, so many hands touch it. The problem they had with the Falcon, and you guys might remember this, is that it looked a lot like the Space 1999 Eagle, which was a show that was happening at the end of that time. So they had to modify it so you wouldn't get accused of copying it. The technique they used was something called kit bashing, which is, you know, try to get as many parts as you can from other model kits and, you know, come up with something based on those parts. Uh, one of the things that uh, Lauren Peterson talks about is the fact that they kind of created their own version of super glue because they were having trouble, you know, gluing together all these models and letting them dry long enough to continue. But he had apparently the ingredients <laughs> available <laughs> to combine them to create what today would be called crazy glue or super glue. And they started using that and things went a lot faster, you know, when they did that. They talk a lot about, about how they had 
you know, 18 hour days. These were younger people, you know, in their 20s. There was a very college campusy fraternity kind of atmosphere to it. You know, that energy from younger people. Uh, they talked about how they got this container and turned it into a hot tub and they had like a slip and slide in the parking lot. You know, all kinds of things to relieve the stress and the uh, frustrations and, you know, just to kind of keep going, which is different than the, like some of the older people <laughs> who cannot kind of relate to that sort of thing. There's a couple of interviews with Harrison Ellenshaw, who did a lot of the mad paintings, who was also the son of Peter Ellenshaw, who had done a ton of Disney-related material, also as a painter, a mad painter. The name Jim Nelson is dropped in there as one of the producers in charge of ILM. And that's that's one of those names that kind of slips through the cracks. Again, you got to remember, this is more of the official version of the story, the Lucasfilm version of the story, to the extent that you could say it's kind of like the Rinsler books. And Jim Nelson is a name that I've learned more from reading Charlie Lippincott's Facebook page regarding a lot of the people that were kind of lost in the mix, you know, of what was happening and the history, you know, of who was in charge of what. They were about six months into production, into the the, the special effects production, and they still had not actually shot anything. They were still doing tests, and they were still building the cameras and the motion control rig and the optical printing. They were still deep into that research and development part because, again, they were starting more or less from scratch. The first official shot I think that they got and I think I talked about it before with the other documentary, was the escape pod discharge and one of the Death Star guns going off. However, keep in mind that none of those shots involved having to use the motion control system because there was no additional movement that was needed. Even the escape pod was basically dropped and it landed somewhere. That's how they got the motion of it. They didn't have to use a motion control rig for that. So after they got those first two shots, they kind of estimated they had about 400 more to go. And half the budget had already been used, half the special effects budget. We talked about that before. I want to mention one really cool thing about this particular documentary. The music was done by James Newton Howard, very famous composer. And the music stands out like crazy. There are certain cuts in this soundtrack having to do with different chapters of the documentary that are fantastic. I actually have them on my iTunes and I play them because they're, they're just great soundtrack music, which is unbelievable that you would have such good music, you know, on, on a documentary. We also look a little bit back at, even though this is ILM, a little back at Lucas's background. The fact that, you know, he, he was involved in this horrific car crash and that people were telling him that he should have been dead. You know, he, it's amazing that he recovered from, from this experience. While attending USC, that's where he meets Coppola and Spielberg. And, you know, afterwards, he kind of teams up with Coppola to form American Zotro. He meets his wife, Marsha, there. And they work on THX 1138, which is the film version of his student film, you know, for American Zotro. The film doesn't do too well. It's very artistically praised for its experimental nature of it. But again, it's not a commercial film. So he follows it up you know, with uh, Coppola insisting on trying something different with American Graffiti. And even though at the time 
they did not know exactly how good the film would be received. And even the studio, I think it was Warner Brothers, they were kind of having second thoughts and they were like, oh, we're like not too crazy about what was happening. The movie ended up being a hit, a blockbuster for its time. And that is what gave George the cachet to push through this time around with Star Wars. Now, at the time, the inspiration that he used in terms of what he wanted to see on the screen is something like the effects of 2001, but the action of Flash Gordon or Buck Rogers, that serialized cliffhangery action that you get from those kind of sci-fi franchises. This is around the time where he brings in Ralph McQuarrie, you know, to start to conceptualize and draw, to give people inspiration, to kind of translate his thoughts into something that he could explain to someone else having to do with the story. 20th Century Fox ends up being the studio that's going to fund it. Alan Ladd Jr., the uh, executive who greenlit it. And the special effects budget is $2 million. Of the, I think it was something like 8 or $10 million for the entire film, two of them were going straight for special effects. Now, in order to set up ILM... George ponied up his own money to get that company going. Because remember, the studio is not going to buy him an effects company. They're going to use the budget that they are budgeted for to spend on special effects. But they are not going to give him a building and staff it. And, you know, all that stuff comes out of George's pocket. And that comes out of his profits from American Graffiti. Again, the name Industrial Light and Magic seems to come from different people kind of taking some kind of credit for it. George claims that he got it while he was working in Tunisia when he was already, I guess, shooting or scouting for Star Wars. Like I said earlier, you know, they spent about half the budget of the special effects and they only had like two or three shots in the can. And at that point, when Lucas came back, which we kind of went through this with the previous documentary, he was seriously considering firing John Dykstra because of the fact that they had not gotten all the stuff that he wanted by that point. Again, John Dykstra makes a very convincing argument that they are creating something from scratch. They're inventing the tools in order to do the effects. So that is going to take time and money. He does not fire him because they're so deep into it at this point that they cannot just stop in any shape or form. They just got to keep going. However, pressure from the shoot, you know, from shooting in, in England, like I told you before, you know, the British crew, he didn't get along with them. They didn't want to do things his way. The editor that was cutting the film also was not cutting it the way he wanted it. You know, the effects are all <laughs> way, 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 way back, you know, schedule-wise. And he actually ends up in the hospital being treated for chest pains. It's like, oh, that sounds familiar. You know, because of all the stress and the anxiety that is taking place around them. At one point, George chose the rough cut to some of his friends, including Brian De Palma and Steven Spielberg. And in it, you know, whenever you have one of these special effects scenes, like a, like a ship, a dogfight, he would insert clips from a World War II film called Dambusters. And it's amazing when you look at those clips, how much they mirror a lot of the action, like even the framing and even the, the lines from the movie. It's incredible. And this is something that you don't see later on. This is something that he had to do, you know, kind of to, just like the McQuarrie paintings, to pass on his thoughts to someone else in a visual manner, because just talking about it wasn't enough. And specifically, the trench battle is the one that the movie The Dam Busters uses a lot of that footage as kind of like, um, you know, standby footage, temporary footage to kind of fill in the gaps. Now, at this point, 
again, as George is uh, <laughs> being very strict and upset at the progress that is being made, they bring in Rose Durgan to kind of reorganize ILM, to kind of put them on a schedule, which seemed to be the thing that Dykstra wasn't able to do. The thing about Dykstra is that he was very good at gathering the teams and giving them their assignments and putting the right people in the right place. And they all kind of work through him. And that is something that Lucas also didn't like. The fact that, similar to the British crew, you know, they only kind of listen to their leader, whoever happened to be that person, whether it's the DP or or some producer, you know, representing the studio or representing the crew. Here was a similar situation where ILM, you know, all of the workers are kind of looking at Dykstra as to what to do. And George, you know, wants to kind of regain control or regain authority of what needs to be done. And that's why he brings in, you know, new managers to kind of, you know, let them do the creative stuff, but let me have somebody manage their time and their assignments. So this way, you know, I, we don't fall behind again. They also have another person, uh, I believe, uh, named George Mather who, again, is brought in, and he's another one of these guys that is there to kind of get everybody in shape. At a certain point during the special effects, you know, process, Phil Tippett and Joe Berg are brought in because George wants to shoot additional cantina scenes. He wants to put more aliens in it, basically. Included in that mix was also Rick Baker, you know, very famous makeup artist, you know, The Thing, uh, American Werewolf in London, you know, super famous guy, had a little bit of a, a role to play in Star Wars to kind of fill in that cantina. So they kind of rebuilt, you know, in the States, a couple of those little cubby holes in the cantina and filled them up with aliens. You know, they were making, they were sculpting and designing all kinds of aliens to, to get, you know, a little more in there. And as a matter of fact, the first alien that we see when you do get to the cantina scene, you see this like, kind of like a triangular looking alien that kind of pops into frame from the bottom. That is Phil Tippett's hand pushing that up into frame. Additionally, Tippett is asked to do the stop-motion chess set. I think he mentioned something that George saw in his shop or somewhere that he had all these little creatures. And he said, hey, can you make those creatures, you know, move to create like a chess set scene? You know, like a stop-motion. And that's that's how he kind of got into the stop-motion part of Star Wars. And originally, from what... Uh, we hear here is that George wanted to have a, a chess set, a, you know, a miniature chess set that moved. But originally they were going to use, you know, like actors and just, you know, make them look small and then move around the board. But around that time, the movie Future World was out and they had a scene like that where there is this kind of toy futuristic chess set that has moving pieces and it was shot with actors. So they didn't want to replicate that. They wanted something a little more creaturey. So at least it looks different. And the fact that it's a hologram, you know, gives it even a a further different look to it. At one point, because of the budget overruns, Fox wanted to eliminate the entire trench sequence. And they actually were able to not do it. The movie would have ended, you know, after the rescue of the princess and them escaping. That's where the movie would have ended. The entire third act would have been removed if the studio would have gotten their way. Now, the way that the trench sequence was constructed, if you will, is because John Dykstra, you know, one of the things that, you know, he was the guy that's into speed and motorcycles and cars and that sort of thing. So, you know, a little bit like Lucas. And one of the things that he talked about is that he would go motorcycle riding like near the canyons. And what would happen is as you're riding through the canyons, you get this feeling, you get this visual perception that 
you're riding a lot faster because of the fact that the walls are so close to you as opposed to riding in an open field. And that is what they ended up doing for the trench run. It's like they created a trench. This way it creates that feeling of speed and, and danger that you're going to hit the walls and that sort of thing. Like I mentioned before, there are certain names that are not very prominent here, and I don't know why in terms of, is it because they just don't have enough room to do it within the six parts? Is it because these people were not available? Were they not that important? I don't know, but I, there are certain names, like for example, Steve Gawley, names that I recognize, names that I've read about. I've seen their pictures. I've seen them working on things. Joe Berg, we talked about him a little before. Bruce Nichols, another guy who's like a, he's one of these giants, you know, from ILM that didn't get as much prominence. It's possible because those guys never possibly were actual supervisors. They were always, you know, artists, but not supervising groups. That's a possibility. I'm not entirely sure how, you know, how high they got on the uh, on the pecking order. Lucas always, you know, from the beginning claimed that he was never happy with the final product. He always felt that out of everything that he wanted, visually that only about 25% of it is what made it you know Ron Howard talks about that how George told him that which makes sense because you know he's always tinkering with these so once Star Wars is done the idea is to continue ILM while waiting for the next film to come up you know the sequel because at this point they understand that this is a money-making venture and there is going to be need for more but until they're ready to get to that spot they got to do something with all these people and, and all the, this property. And they, so they start kind of using ILM for other projects, for other people that are, you know, looking for special effects work. In the mix of what's happening here, while they're looking for other work, you know, while they're, they're kind of renting out the, the facility, John Dykstra starts to do some traveling mats, optical projection, optical printing work for Battlestar Galactica, the television show. He kind of forms his own company also, in a way, and he's kind of using ILM. Now, I'm not entirely sure if there is a problem at this point when it comes to officially doing it. This has nothing to do with what later will happen, where Lucasfilm sues uh, Universal because of uh, Battlestar Galactica's resemblance, I guess, to, uh, to Star Wars. But at this point, this is kind of like a murky area, because this is also around the time where Dykstra is not invited to stay with ILM because they're in the process of also of relocating to San Francisco. They want to move their facility up north, which is part of Lucas's overall plan is to create a place where filmmakers can go and, you know, do their pre-production, post-production, you know, all kinds of work, you know, away from Hollywood. And it might have been part of the agreement, I guess, of Dykstra leaving, and but in the process of leaving, he's allowed to use the equipment for a while. You know, the Dykstra Flex is his machine. You know, it's got his name on it. So there's probably some kind of an arrangement that was made. He obviously was not happy about it. In the interview, you, you hear him talking about it, and it, was, it, it seems to be a very painful thing. Now, granted, John Dykstra went on to do some amazing work, you know, with his company Apogee, you know, on many, many, many films. But there is that, oh crap, you know, this thing is fantastic and now I'm not part of it anymore. Again, Lucas, you can kind of say he, you know, he'll hold a grudge. When he's upset, he will continue to be upset. And those kind of things happened. You know, this is the business side you're talking about now. You know, the fact that things were not done as fast as he wanted them done, you know, he had to hold somebody accountable for him and that person was Dykstra. 
Now, not only did Dystra not make it up north, but there were a lot of people that didn't make it up north. You know, the manner in which this company functioned was such that, obviously, when you're busy, you hire more people. And when you're not busy, you don't hire more people. And if there were any issues with anybody, those people were just not asked to come and move you know, up north. Again, you're asking people to commit to a move to a whole other part. I mean, it's the same state, but it's a very long distance to have to relocate yourself, your family, whatever. And not everybody did it. Not only not everybody did it, but not everybody wanted to do it either. So it was a combination of, you know, all of a sudden, you know, we're starting with a, a smaller crew and see who are the lucky ones that, you know, we're getting picked to, to, to continue on. Now, one of the big showpieces, if you will, of Empire Strikes Back was that they had decided that there was going to be this massive snow battle with these possible tank-like Imperial vehicles versus the less, obviously, equipped rebels. At one point, they were looking at at the idea of using like a tank in other words take a take like a world war ii tank and modify it put some additional pieces to it and that will be the bad guy vehicle but they quickly realized it wasn't working out because it's practically impossible to hide you know the the barrel the gun barrel of a tank no matter how much crap you put around it it still kind of has that shape and it just wasn't i think it just wasn't threatening enough it wasn't that that as big as they envisioned it so as they were researching you know all the different concepts there was this catalog apparently from Ford about four trucks and it was all about futuristic machines and Sid Mead, which is a very important, famous name in science fiction concept design. You know, if, if you look at Blade Runner, if you look at 2010, you know, all these films that Sid Mead has drawn stuff for, this is a drawing that he had made for the Ford company of a kind of like a truck that instead of running on wheels, it ran on mechanical feet. So when you look at that picture, it's kind of like, oh yeah, I can kind of see that the, the Yadat more or less is there. Those those big clunky feet with the, you know, the fat feet with the toes, you know, that kind of thing. Except that the legs are not very tall. It's, it's not as up high in the air as we eventually get to. Also, by making it taller, you can kind of make it move like an animal. And the fact that it's a mechanical device, you know, going the the stop motion route seemed to be perfect because now you're talking about something that has like mechanical kind of move, which is the downside of stop motion, you know, initially was that, that, you know, when you're dealing with stop motion, especially creatures, you always end up with that little, you know, kind of like step-by-step movements. They're kind of, you know, there's always the problem of blurring. You can't blur (laughs) in stop motion because you're photographing one frame at a time so things are not physically moving while the you know aperture is open in the camera so you don't get that blurring effect that makes it more realistic looking around the time of empire when empire is revving up and lucas has already moved everybody up to san francisco is when the company starts to you know delve a little deeper into the computer side of special effects there's a gentleman called Ed Kalmet, who was the head of the computer division. And he oversaw a lot of the early stages of what would eventually become, you know, the, the computer division of Lucasfilm that later turned into Pixar. But that's another story. In his game plan, in his long-term plan, as we mentioned in the other documentary, the goal was to eventually come up with 
digital systems, ways of doing things faster, more modern, because everybody was still at this point, you know, in mid-80s, early 80s, we're still dealing with film, we're still dealing with physically cutting, manually cutting film, developing film, running the film through a projector with light, you know, that kind of technology that was kind of frustrating to Lucas because, you know, he wanted to do it faster, faster, faster and better. So he starts researching through this computer division that he forms into digital audio, into digital editing, into creating actual digital pictures, computer graphic rendered pictures. So while on one hand, we're still running strong with ILM is not even hitting their peak at this point. I mean, Star Wars is what brought them on the map. Empire and the future films are going to continue to have ILM rise and rise in popularity and in achievements in visual effects. Quietly in the background, there are the beginnings, the quiet beginnings of an entire digital division of Lucasfilm. Phil Tippett, once again, for this particular film, not only are they going to be doing the adats, but also the Tauntauns. The Tauntauns were initially described as snow lizards, and they went through a number of designs when they finally settled on what they wanted. Phil Tippett ends up being a very interesting character. You know, he's one of those two main ILM guys that have had been there forever and stayed on for a very long time. But there's definitely two different types of personalities that you're looking at here. Dennis Muren is one of them. The other one is Phil Tippett. And Phil Tippett talks about a lot how he had suffered from anxiety and depression, and he had dabbled with LSD. He had apparently a, a mental breakdown. But he talks about how the creativity of his hobby-turned-profession uh, specifically the stop-motion side, kind of helped to treat his anxieties and his problems because it forces him to focus on one thing, very monotonous, but it calms him down and it, it gives him the, the order that he needed, you know, in order to get better. He said at the time, they didn't have, the, I guess, the terminology or the diagnosis for being bipolar, and that's one of the things he had suffered to. And, and you know, you can look at some of his other documentaries and, and some of his other interviews. The man is, he's a little different. You could see he's a little off. There's something different about him. Nowadays, I mean, obviously, he's not involved directly with ILM anymore, but he's doing his own thing. He actually put out this stop-motion film that he had been working on for, like, I don't know, over 10 years or something. So it's it's crazy how, you know, he's still doing it. You know, that stop-motion stuff is still in his blood. And not everybody, again, and we'll hear about this later, embraced, you know, the digital revolution as quick as other people have. So in between this period of Empire and Return of the Jedi now, we have films like... Raiders of the Lost Ark, we have Dragon Slayer, we have, you know, all these other properties that are basically doing the same thing they did before. They're working on other films while they're waiting for the next round to come in, and the next round being Return of the Jedi. Spielberg talks about that, how much he loved visiting ILM or working with ILM, because he was describing it as a funhouse environment with like like-minded people like the people that he gets along with the most are those type of creative you know technicians he said it was kind of like a college campus like everybody very relaxed you know but working super hard now raiders came about as George pitched it to Spielberg. You know, Spielberg was thinking about wanting to do a James Bond film, and, you know, he I guess nobody was offering it to him, but Lucas says, I got one better for you. Let's just create our own character. And that's how the whole thing with Raiders got created, right before Star Wars opened. 
George and uh, Spielberg were on vacation in Hawaii, the story goes, and that's where it happened. George was, you know, recovering from Star Wars, and Spielberg was recovering from Close Encounters. On Raiders, uh, they talk about Steve Gawley, again, the, the guy that I mentioned before, that they don't really go too deep into it, but the fact that he created the cloud effects for Raiders of the Lost Ark at the end, when the clouds start to form, you know, the final sequence. They also talk about E.T. around that time, 1981, 1982. This is where Dennis Muren, uh, you know, takes the lead in creating the effects for E.T., designing the shots. He, that's something that he was very good at, you know, not just the, how to get it done, but how the... You know, the composition of the shot, which is something that normally that's what the DP does for the live action stuff. You're dealing with special effects here. So it's like a different eye needs to be employed (laughs) in order to get it right. Another person in the mix, again, this is all because Dykstra is not around anymore, is Richard Edlin. He was also kind of promoted to being one of those leads. He worked on Poltergeist. Another one of these Spielberg productions, even though Toby Hooper was the director. And this is, if you guys remember, this is one of those films that the rumor is that Spielberg really was directing and he was like ghost directing Toby Hopper. Uh, Specifically, one of the things they talk about is the house imploding sequence of how they got that to work, you know, by using a vacuum and lines to kind of pull the house inward, you know, from itself. So the house kind of collapses on itself and disappears. We also hear from Ken Ralston, who did a lot of the ship work, you know, the aerials, if you will, the the battle scenes for Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. And what's memorable here, other than the fact that it's a great film, that in this instance, they use an entire computer-generated sequence to simulate the Genesis device detonating on a planet. And because it's a simulation, you know, it doesn't have to be perfect. We don't want it to look realistic. First of all, they can't make it look realistic yet. They don't have that technology. But it's supposed to be a simulation, so it works perfectly. And it becomes one of these first, not necessarily the first, but as far as a sequence, because it's an entire sequence. It's not just a shot. There have been shots before, and believe it or not, I think it might have been on Future World, where they actually did use a holographic kind of computer-generated image. And technically, you could say that's the first shot, maybe. But this is the first time that you have an entire sequence where the you know the, the you have the dead planet, you have the, the missile hitting it, and then the camera you know, travels around the planet as it's changing and it finally, you know, flourishes. So that's a very important thing for the computer graphics division. All of a sudden it's like, oh, what are those guys doing? You know, that kind of thing. Now, by the time we get to Return of the Jedi, they have a approximately 170 special effects artists working on that film. In comparison to Star Wars, that had about 70. So you're talking about an additional 100 people. Because obviously every movie wants to top the previous movie. One funny little thing they show us is that while they are practicing the Jabba's Palace musical sequence, they're using Super Freak as the temp track. And they're they're all dancing to that. It's like, well, wait a minute. Wasn't that Super Freak? Isn't that MC Hammer? It's like, oh, no, wait a minute. MC Hammer sampled James... <laughs> sampled Rick James... <laughs> So it's like, wow, it's funny that that's what they had in their minds as they're practicing and putting this together. Phil Tippett was the puppet operator for Max Revo, and the Rancor ended up being a rod puppet, but at first they were trying to do the man in the suit. Phil Tippett was the man in the suit, and it didn't work. It just wasn't working out. But the rod puppet technique seemed to work better. This is also around the time when... 
you have the movie Dragon Slayer, and you're dealing also with something called go motion, which is kind of like stop motion, except there is actual movements that are taking place so that they can create the blur effect that, you know, they couldn't create in the past. So they're kind of combining techniques here. But in the case of the Rancor, it was traditional rod puppetry, you know, slow down, you know, all kinds of tricks uh, so that it kind of moves at the speed and at the, the, like, the lumbering size that you expect it to be. During the bike chase uh, sequence, they employed video animatics, which we talked about before, you know, uh, all these little action figures and uh, little miniature sets to kind of map out how everything is going to look. Return of the Jedi had over 900 effect shots, individual effect shots that were needed for the entire film. Now, when they're done with Jedi, once again, you have another kind of change take place. Richard Edlund, you know, one of those top tier leads, decides to leave and to form his own company called Boss Films, which I actually toured back in 87. And he goes off to do his own thing. He's, he's working on uh, Ghostbusters and Fright Night. And I remember all that stuff was uh, in his uh, facility. It's, it's incredible. And one of the things that he mentioned was that little by little, whether you liked it or not, ILM was becoming too corporate. It had lost part of its college campus, young feel, you know, energy, that kind of energy. It was just a machine at that point, he feels, you know, which is, it's unfortunate, but it's true and it's usually unavoidable. The more success, the more people, the more money, you end up creating all these layers of management and supervision, you know, for accountability and tracking all the money, you know, that you start to kind of lose the original you know, not necessarily mom and pop feel, but, you know, that that family fun feel, because that happens, I mean, I've seen it happen so many times, you know, in real time <laughs> to a company. But even something like ILM, they, they you know, they, they went through that. It was a completely different animal, little by little. So Jedi is over. They have major layoffs taking place because obviously... You know, you don't need 170 people there anymore because all they're doing is those other in-between films at this point. The supervisors, you know, the head leads, all those guys were kind of safe because those guys are like the top guys. So they knew they had a job and they could continue. But yeah, a lot of people ended up losing their job. During this time, you have Indiana Jones films, you have Back to the Future, you have Who Framed Roger Rabbit, you have Cocoon. So... Again, as I mentioned before, yes, the computer division is bubbling up, but this is like the heyday of ILM. They're doing work for so many different filmmakers, and through their technique, through their perfected techniques, they're turning out some amazing, iconic imagery, you know, through the special effects. Joe Johnston also tells a story that when they were done doing Temple of Doom, that he was kind of like feeling a little burnt out and he wanted to just get away from it all and resign. And he talks about how Lucas, instead of resigning, talked to him into enrolling at USC to become a filmmaker because apparently that's one of the things he wanted to do. He wanted to get away from the effects and he actually wanted to do his own films. So according to him, Lucas paid for his tuition and kept him on partial salary in order for him not to resign and to be able to still remain with them in a reduced capacity. As a result of that, he ended up then directing Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, and he directed Jurassic Park 3, and then later he directed Captain America, you know. And it's all because of, um, you know, Lucas kind of nudging him to 
go to film school, start learning the you know the craft from from a different perspective, you know, not from the special effects side, but from the from the directing side, which is what he wanted to do and eventually did. At this point in the documentary, we meet a young guy named John Knoll. And John Knoll is a name that today is a very big name in Star Wars ILM history. Initially, we learned that he was 15 years old and somehow got a tour of ILM. He took a chance, made a few phone calls, and somehow ended up there. He got to visit ILM in 78, which would be right around the time where I guess they're prepping Empire. Star Wars is done. Huge Star Wars fan, I mean, obviously. He then attends USC Film School. And then he was able to intern at ILM, including in the computer division, where, as I mentioned before, Lucasfilm was promoting a Pixar system, it was called, where you could digitize film. But again, this is the early stages of that. We also meet Ben Burt in the documentary, who's mainly known originally for sound effects. He's won an Academy, he's won an Academy Award. But later on, he actually started writing. And he also started doing second unit directing. And he eventually ended up doing film editing, nonlinear film editing, with the prequels. By 1984, they have the beginning of a, a device called the Edit Droid, which turns into Avid many years later. So this is the first attempts at nonlinear editing. The Pixar system, like I mentioned, is a digital computer-generated image device that can encode a film image where you can then use a painting program to alter that image. While John Knoll is working there, him and his brother, who are, again, they're heavily into computers, they put together the beginning of what today is known as Photoshop. If you ever buy the system, if you look at the uh, the copyright and the date of the, it was invented and everything, you'll see John and Thomas Knoll. And now you're dealing with slight advancements that are taking place and little, little skips and hops, you know, heading more towards the digital side of filmmaking. Another thing to keep in mind is that while this is happening, you start to see a rift within ILM. You have your old school analog people and your new school digital people. And those two camps don't mix too well. They don't interact too well. They're, you know, again, the old, the old timey guys are, are still sticking to their college atmosphere, campus fun atmosphere. But the computer guys are a little more, you know, introverted and... They all work next to each other exactly the same. You know, it's definitely two different camps. One person that also works with them in the digital side is John Lasseter, who, again, later becomes one of these amazing Pixar directors. And at a certain point, I guess what's implied is that the computer division, or at least the Pixar computer division side, wanted to go more towards creating animated computerized films. But the Lucasfilm side kind of wanted to create computerized, created live action material. So this is around the time where apparently Lucas sells the Pixar side over to Steve Jobs. And then obviously we know what happens after Apple gets it and, you know, it becomes Pixar films and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, fast forward to what Pixar is now. And what ends up happening is whatever is left of the division, the computer division, they all focus on the live action side of digital filmmaking. Let Pixar do the 
the animation. We're going to do the live action stuff, which is what George really wants. And from here is where we start to see the advancements and the triumphs computer-generated images such as Terminator 2 and The Abyss. So around this time, another term that we use to refer to in between the films, you know, in between the original trilogy and the prequels is The Dark Times, or in this particular case, The Dark Side. That is what sometimes they also refer to as, you know, the old-school analog you know, model makers, effects creators versus the digital, computer-based, up-and-coming creators. And just like with Star Trek II, that you're starting to push the envelope on some new things having to do with computer graphics, in the film Willow, they get to try what could be considered to be the one of the first morphing effects, you know, on a film. The effect consisted basically of transforming there's the word morph in there, a tiger into a woman. So you have to kind of not just cut away from it and change it like they used to in the old, you know, werewolf scenes where they would dissolve in between shots. No, here you wanted to see it happen, you know, in front of your eyes. And to pull this off, they basically combined everything. You know, they weren't ready to go full-blown digital. It was going to be a combination of all of these things. So they created some animatronics and puppets for all the different animals that the initial tiger would switch to on its way to the woman. And through CGI is how you blend from one to the other, how you go from one creature to the next creature to the next creature to the woman. And it required, you know, the entire department, the entire special effects department, both the CGI side and the practical side, because they had to shoot all these individual elements. And then they had to digitize all these individual elements and apply this morphing technique. This was followed by such films like Who Framed Roger Rabbit, when they were able to combine, you know, animation and live action. And the animation looked very realistic. You know, it was groundbreaking what they accomplished on that film. Movies like Empire of the Sun where you're starting to now use effects when you don't really even realize they're being used, you know, in order to create some background shots or some airplanes or some very, you know, large crowds, that kind of stuff, that your brain tells you, yeah, that's real, that's real, that's real, as opposed to a spaceship where your brain tells you, well, this isn't real, but it looks damn real. And some, you know, bigger additional films like Ghostbusters 2. At this point, we also start to learn a little bit more about the different people that started to kind of tippy-toe and test the waters, you know, from one camp to the other. We meet Jean Bolt, who used to work at the model shop, and she crossed over, you know, little by little into the digital side. Mark Dippy, Steve Spaz Williams. Those are two names that, just like John Knoll, will become the tip of the spear of the digital department and bring it to the forefront, little by little. Mark Dippy is from Alaska, and he was the computer graphics person. One of their first projects was the water tentacle in the abyss. This is a very small, short sequence in the film where this water tentacle comes up and it everything reflects off of it and it morphs itself, it changes itself to mimic the people around them. And 
that was one of their first challenges to see, can we really pull something off that's never been done? All they had before that, like I said, was that Star Trek II, you know, rendition of a, a simulation. But for it to look real, the only other thing they had was young Sherlock Holmes from a number of years before, where you had a character. This is a character. This isn't a planet we're talking about. It's a character. Where you had a character that comes off the stained glass window and reassembles itself into a, uh, a knight. And it's walking forward, but it's still flat. But it also still doesn't connect itself to itself. You know, it's still separate by individual shards of glass, which is how that was done. And that kind of helped to believe the effect because if they had to make it a solid walking shape, they could not have done it. They weren't, they weren't ready for that. Well, here's a chance now where it's like, okay, they want us to do a creature, a character, not a person, but something that is solid and was going to be very liquidy at the same time. You can see through it. It reflects, you know, it's a real challenge. And they accomplished it. They were able to do it. At this point is where Dennis Murin, during one of these interviews, says, you know, this is exactly the point where I realized that this was the future, that the ability to manipulate computer graphics in that manner was the direction that we were all heading. Now, at the time, you know, up until that point, the idea was that the computer graphics department would just enhance things that were being done in the model shop. In other words, it would accompany, it would make it a little better the bulk of the work would be done by the model shop, you know, through traditional means. And then the graphics is what they would just add on, you know, a little bit extra on. And around 1991 is when they started to migrate some of their traditional analog model people over to the CGI side. They gave them training. Some of them didn't want to do it. Some of them did. And things are starting to change and everybody can feel that there's a change coming. Doug Chan enters the picture around this time. We know him more as a conceptual artist, especially around the time of episode one. But he was there a little bit before that. His title, I believe, is art director. But he, just like many of these other guys, had grown up with, you know, Ray Harryhausen and Star Wars and collecting all those making of Star Wars art books and stuff like that, which I, you know, I, I have those same books and I remember, yeah, those are fantastic books that you just consume. The next phase in special effects uh, for ILM came with Terminator 2. This time around, you know, James Cameron comes back to ILM and it's like, okay, here's what I got. I want to make a character, a full-blown character now that is completely CGI when it comes to its liquid metal stage. A little bit similar to the water tentacle, except this will be solid, more like mercury, like liquid chrome, which is the T-1000. Now, if you think about, for example, in the Abyss, they had 16 effect shots. Terminator 2, 42 effect shots. And these are all CGI effects we're talking about. Some of them, they were able to combine practical effects with CGI. Some of them were like puppets or, or sculptures, and then they would overlap with CGI enhancements. And that was kind of more like what they were initially thinking about, that they were just going to combine the two. But then came Jurassic Park. When prepping for Jurassic Park, Spielberg's goal, you know, with ILM was to take advantage of stop motion and be able to use stop motion completely on these dinosaurs. 
for the the you know for the big walking fighting sequences they would use stop motion for the you know more close-ups larger interacting kind of sequences they would use you know big puppets big animatronics and that sort of thing and what they had already prepared was that Phil Tippett would handle the stop motion side of it and Stan Winston would come in and help them with the animatronic puppet side of it and their CGI department would help them to enhance again all these effects specifically trying to create a blurring effect that is one of the problems with stop motion is that everything looks too sharp you know we talked about this earlier but Williams and Dippy kind of looked at everything and they started to believe that it is possible that through CGI they might be able to do the whole thing in other words, not just enhance stop motion, but completely bypass stop motion and go straight to CGI. So they started doing some tests, and during a certain demonstration that they were having, they kind of snuck in to the upper <laughs> level of ILM executives, if you will, people like Kathleen Kennedy, and I don't know if Lucas was present there, but obviously Steven Spielberg, and they kind of showed them this render that they did of the dinosaur walking towards them uh, tyrannosaurus rex and everybody looked at it and they were like what the hell is that you know they were like yeah this was done with a computer and at that point everything was like okay everybody stop what you're doing we need to reassess what's happening here now you got to also understand that this is a very big moment uh, not only historically as far as the the progression of cgi but you have certain big established names like Phil Tippett, who at that point, you know, did not like CGI at all. He didn't like the time it would take to do CGI, the fact that it couldn't do everything you wanted it to do. But he kind of understood, at least in the interview for the documentary, that he was just kind of, kind of like digging in his feet. He was just kind of like, no, 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 this can't happen. This can't, you know, it was the old way versus the new way. And the new way was about to overtake the old way. But like I said before, once Spielberg and Kathleen Kennedy and even Phil Tippett saw what this demo that they were able to accomplish, they were like, forget it. This is what we got to do. This is the way we're going. There's no way around it. No matter how much, you know, Phil Tippett felt that it wasn't fair and it, it, it was just not, you know, what he was trained to do and the thing he loved doing the most. It was the direction that they were heading. Steven Spielberg says that in an interview that it was almost like a religious experience for him, you know, that he basically saw a shifting of the gears, a realignment of filmmaking, you know, because all of a sudden they have these new tools now that give them unlimited creativity as far as what can be accomplished. And it's funny because Spielberg, I think I believe the, the, he had asked Phil Tippett, you know, how do you feel about this? And Phil Tippett said, I feel like I'm extinct. And that is a line that apparently Spielberg then used in Jurassic Park. Dennis Murin also says that, you know, Phil Tippett was shell-shocked. He was just like kind of shaken to his foundation when he realized how good this was and, and what it meant for his particular line of work. Around that time, Phil Tippett apparently got pneumonia and had to kind of go away for a while. And I'm sure it was all stress and depression related because of all of these things that were happening. 
But, you know, because he thought he was completely out. You know, they were going to do this a different way. They weren't going to need him. But Spielberg and, and ILM and everybody kind of decided, no, this is what we're going to do. We're still going to need Phil Tippett and his crew. We're still going to need all of his stop motion animators. But instead of animating a model that gets filmed, what they're going to have to do is they're going to have to animate just the armature of a model. And that armature will be hooked up to a computer where it will be fed all of these moves. So the artists, you know, the animators' movements is what they are feeding the computer. So the computer is learning from the animators. Of course, this is not how it's done now. But again, remember, this is how it all kind of started. And in a way, it kind of saved their jobs, at least in that phase of the progression of CGI, because the way that Spielberg explained it was that, you know, up until that point, the only people that knew how to animate dinosaurs, you know, were stop motion people. So they still needed stop motion artists to direct the action that was happening so that the computer people can gather that information and turn it into something. So CGI shots around this time started to go crazy. You know, with Jurassic Park, I believe they had something like 80 CGI shots to do. They did Casper the Friendly Ghost, pretty forgettable movie. However, it had 480 CGI shots. So you can kind of tell what's going on here. ILM grows to about somewhere between 1,200 and 1,500 people because the CGI department is just exploding, you know, with more people and more people. Around that time, you start to see movies like Jumanji, Forrest Gump. Jumanji has a lot of animal CGI effects, which now, again, they look a little dated now. But Forrest Gump had a lot of effects that had nothing to do with, you know, fantastical sci-fi stuff. A lot of it had to do with historical footage and putting Forrest into that footage. And it's like, wow, it's like, how the hell did they do that? And once they got to that point, once they crossed that Jurassic Park threshold, that is when George Lucas decides, okay, I think we're ready now to start prepping more Star Wars. You know, it, it had been quite a long time. However, before we move on to episode one, he wants to do a little bit of tweaking, digital tweaking on the original films. While preparing for episode one, you know, once again, he has at this point, as I mentioned before, which is more what I'm used to, Doug Chan is his art director. You know, he's doing the conceptual art, he's doing the storyboards, all that kind of stuff. And in this particular wave of films, George is already planning on doing something that he's never done before, and that is trying to introduce digital cameras. Because now that they have these tools for post-production, he wants to be able to shoot in that manner from the beginning. And he wants to be able to edit in that manner because by this point we have, you know, the Avid system is running, you know, in, in, in major companies and that sort of thing. But the other problem is that they don't have a way of projecting. So they wanted to figure out a way of, of adapting projectors or creating projectors that would work off of digital files instead of using film. And just like it usually happens when you try to introduce new technology, the existing industry was resistant to it. You know, it was the usual, oh, they're going to throw, throw us out of work. We're not going to have work anymore because all these computers are going to take over and that sort of thing. But kicking and screaming, you know, little by little, they got to where they wanted. Around this time, 
You're talking about, you know, Iron Man, John Favreau, who will become a very important player these days in the Star Wars field. He was also not a big CGI person, and they had already done a lot of stuff for Iron Man, planning on doing it, you know, practical. But then when they would see well, this is what we can do with CGI. And there were a lot of times where he couldn't tell the difference. And it was like, oh my God, I can't, you know, uh, forget it. Just do it. Do it CGI because this is ridiculous how good it looks. When we move forward to the current times, shows like The Mandalorian, they've introduced yet another unbelievable phase of special effects. And that is the use of the volume, which is a 360 degree background projection kind of system where you can just create your backgrounds ahead of time. You don't do it afterwards, you do it before. And then the actors can interact with the background instead of having to be in front of a green screen or a blue screen. It has completely changed the way that things are shot now and it gives them so much more the ability to kind of bring some of these, not all of them, but some of these effects to the front end as opposed to the back end. You know, the traditional way was that, oh, don't worry, the effects all get added later. You guys act and pretend that that is here or pretend that that background is a big castle or whatever. Now, they can actually have some of these background sets and effects interact with them. For example, I think a smaller version of this was used for Solo, where you can actually have the light speed effect without having to use blue screen like they've done in the past. They basically encircle the cockpit with a screen that's big enough and they just project that light, that effect. And then everybody can see it and everybody can have the glow of the white lights, you know, glowing on their face as they're moving. So no matter how you shoot it, this background adjusts to the angle of the camera. That is the other thing that's unbelievable. As the camera moves around a person, the background adjusts to that background framing as if it's a camera out in the woods somewhere shooting, you know, trees or whatever. Now, this eventually will start it now to eliminate most of the heavy, heavy blue screen work or green screen work that was done in the past. Some of it is still done a little bit because there's certain areas that you want to superimpose, especially areas that are interactive with actors, things that are more in the foreground as opposed to the background. So you, you have layers. Plus, the entire foreground has to be built because you want to see, you know, the desk, the chair, but then like the bar in the back might be something that's projected on the wall. You know, this is a form of rear projection that they used to do, again, back in the analog days, where they would project an image in the background. But this is different because these are screens. These are monitors that are like seamless monitors. And you're talking about, I don't know, 4K or higher quality imaging, like computer graphic, computer quality, how amazing it looks. So it's a little bit of old technology with a lot of new technology on top of it. And one of the things that had been happening through all this time is that people started to kind of miss the old style. In other words, sometimes things looked a little too heavy in terms of CGI. So there's been a, I don't want to call it a backlash, but a kind of like a back and forth of, well, okay, we can do all these things digitally, but we don't have to do them digitally. We could still make certain things practical as long as it doesn't you know break the budget because there's certain things that have to look a little more touchable. And one of the things that they did, I remember from Mandalorian, and it's just as a goof, they wanted to throw in an effect shot. And they wanted to basically create a model of the Razor Crest. And 
they built a model, but then they were like, well, hold on, let's build a model and let's actually also build, you know, and they did it, I think, under spare time. This is John Knoll. Let's build a motion control rig. So there is a shot in Mandalorian where you actually get to see the ship flying and the movement taking place, you know, the action of the ship done old school by moving the camera through a computer control rig and just to give it you know there's different passes because like one passes the ship the other passes the engines the other passes this the other passes that so they kind of threw it in there you know for i guess for the fans not only them because and and for the fans of the old style special effects the entire end of the documentary is a very emotional thing it kind of goes through all of the key players and and they talk about how what a life-changing experience it was for some of them while they worked there and for some of them that still work there. They talk about the friendships. They talk about the family atmosphere. And that's funny because, you know, I've mentioned so many times, you know, talking to friends or co-workers that that, the whole theory of the company is like a family. To me is these days, (laughs) in my experience, it is complete nonsense. It's a complete fabrication to make you feel like you belong to something that really doesn't exist. Your average company will take advantage of you, drop you overnight. (laughs) And that is not the way a family should behave. But there is this mythological, you know, honeymoon period when you're working for a company where you feel like, yeah... You're appreciated and, you're, and and there's a back and forth of appreciation that is almost family-like. But what they're talking about, it is something that I experienced, not so much in a company, but when I was in college. And that is a whole bunch of people with a similar interest, in our case it was television, putting in an incredible amount of hours and times and effort and you know blood, sweat and tears into these projects that we were doing. And... Getting to know, forming relationships, you know, feeling kind of like a family. And that is how I can connect to what they are talking about. And the fact that they, to this day, not all of them, but some of them can have that feeling, I find it completely amazing. And I am super jealous that anybody can kind of reach that level of work happiness, that they can take something back. Now, don't get me wrong, you know, if you look at Lucas's example, his work ethic was so, you know, enormous that more or less cost him his marriage. I'm sure there were other issues. And there were so many people that worked at Lucasfilm that eventually had to leave or were fired. You know, people like John Dystra, who, again, the man is a legend in special effects, and he went on to do other things with his own company, just like a lot of the other ones did. Richard Endland, you know, he formed Boss Films, which is one of the places I visited back in 87. But yeah, you know, would have Dystra wanted to continue all the way to the end of Jedi, for example? I'm sure he probably would have. But there's probably still, you know, a bitter taste with people like him, because on one hand, they're super proud of what they created, but on the other hand, they feel like they got a raw deal. And also there were, like I mentioned before, there were many employees that were hired temporarily while there were projects happening and then they were let go. You know, they were like, you know, work for hire kind of scenarios. There's a lot of people, I remember like watching Mythbusters and Adam Savage talking about when he worked in, in the prequels. And it was like, you can kind of tell that he absolutely loved it. And he cherishes that time, 
But at the same time, you can you're like, well, why didn't he just stay there and work to, to you know to this day? Well, that's because that's what they did. They hired a whole bunch of people, and then they let go a whole bunch of people. And then when something else would happen, they would hire them. You know, it would be an ongoing. Not everybody got to stay there on a permanent basis. A lot of the people in the documentary, those lead supervisors, those head of departments, those are the ones that kind of get that and get to stay for the long haul. But there's also <laughs> A whole bunch of people, I'm sure that, you know, they were kind of one-shot deals. They did their thing and left. Some of them, more notables, like Phil Tippett, you know, he eventually also left. But yes, he did have a lot of issues, you know, personal issues. And just the fact that the industry itself changed, the technology changed. And he wasn't able to, I guess, keep up with it in that manner. I mean, the type of work he ended up doing, I know he worked, I think he did uh, Starship Troopers. And I think he did a similar work with that. He did the model side of creating these things. And I guess he might have also done like the directing of the animation, similar to what they did in Jurassic Park. But he never went full CGI. He never, you know, went in that direction. But uh, yeah, there are a lot of people that never completely switched over or were not asked, (laughs) you know, to come to the next stage of that particular, you know, progression of ILM. All right, I hope you guys enjoyed today's show. We went really, really deep into the light and magic documentary, multi-part documentary that is from Disney+. Plus. This is probably one of my favorite documentaries. I love the subject matter. I love the people they were able to interview. It is such a personal, special documentary for me because I remember when I was very young, when I was uh, in my Star Wars phase, which you might say to yourself, well, you're still in your Star Wars. I am still in my Star Wars phase. But in terms of I was still in school and trying to, you know, point my future career in the direction of having to do with Star Wars. And in my particular case, you know, I've always gravitated towards the special effects side of it. And this documentary is is really emotional, if you will, because you do get to listen to a lot of people, again, a lot of people that we've worshipped for years about, you know, from their talent, it's such a talented group of people, you know, creatives, responsible for some of the best, you know, visuals that we grew up with, from the early optical printing, (laughs) matte painting days, and all that stuff, to now, where, you know, digital has basically taken over everything. But... This is a really, like I said, emotional documentary. A lot of it, again, towards the end, about some of the people that participated. It almost feels like a a college experience. And I talked about this before, that a lot of the people that, that were there briefly, a lot of the people that are still there, you know, they talk about it with such heartfelt emotion. Even somebody like Dykstra, who left ILM under not the best of circumstances, still is there. And it's very poignant that he is willing to participate in these type of documentaries. And he rightly so has the uh, the right to feel proud of what he accomplished, even though he was not permitted to continue, you know, due to the, the personality clashes and the, you know, all the behind the scenes, uh, you know, sausage making, I like to call it, you know, of, of Star Wars. But again, for me, you know, this is one of those things that is kind of like, ILM and special effects in general for me was one of those road less traveled type of scenarios. You know, the thing that I kind of shot for at one point and kind of missed the target. 
And guess what? 40, 50 years later, it's one of those regrets. And in a way, it's kind of like, well, is it better to not have tried at all? Is it better to not have gone far enough in trying to go in that direction at a younger time in my life, as opposed to ending up being somebody who kind of has the shot and kind of gets in there for a brief amount of time and then spends the rest of their life reliving those, you know, 15 minutes or however long it is that they were there as their highlight of their, you know, career. Is that better than nothing? Probably. It's probably better than nothing. And you do kind of hear that sometimes from some people, as I mentioned before, like somebody like Adam Savage, who talks about working at ILM as something that he cherished so fondly, but it was a brief stint. You know, they were hiring people as temporary freelancers and then letting them go. In the show, we talk about that whole family feeling and how, you know, I personally do no longer believe in the family feeling. <laughs> Not that I ever did really. I mean, you always have that honeymoon period, as I mentioned before. But when it comes down to it, a lot of this behind the scenes stuff that you hear, you know, you do get to the nitty gritty of, hey, listen, when it's all said and done, it's a business and the business is there to make money. And if you do not make that money, you don't have the business and everything just falls apart. With that said, we do hear a lot of stories of how generous George Lucas was with his time and money towards some people, a lot of people. But it is one of those things that I personally always will be wondering, oh, I wish I could have gotten a little farther with that. With that said, I am very impressed with how my son, for example, is also pursuing his version of filmmaking, television, whatever. And in the brief time that he's already been out there in the field, as far as I'm concerned, he's gotten a lot further out <laughs> than I ever had. I took the the safer route at one point, and I kind of stayed on that safer route for many different reasons. You know, personality is one thing, you know. I'm not a good freelancer. I'm more of a company man. I like steady, predictable, you know, loyal. And again, all that goes out the window the second somebody screws you over, which happens very often, believe it or not, in the business world. But yeah, it's something that sooner or later people have to, who are in this sort of business, have to decide which route to take, especially if you start a family and, and you just cannot really not only afford, but take those chances, take those leaps into unknown territories like that. But watching this documentary, it kind of brought it all back. And it is this thing that kind of will continue, I think, to kind of dig, you know, into me. But man, I wish this thing was like, I wish it was a TV series that lasted, you know, 20 episodes and then they do another season because there are so many cool, cool stories having to do with this company and all the different facets of, of the development of the technology and the different people that contributed and the different people that took it to different places and where those people went after that. Like I mentioned, you know, some of those original people, how they kind of branched out and formed their own companies. And then from there, you know, things kind of multiplied in different directions. And how ILM continues to this day to perform some unbelievable, unbelievable feats of visual effects. But anyway, I want to thank you guys for listening 
Thank you for being patient with the amount of time that it takes for, to put these shows together lately. We are going through a transitionary period. <laughs> Personally and professionally, I don't know if you can say professionally, but and it is having an effect on the volume of material that I can put out. I do have a lot of ideas, I do have a lot of shows, and I do have a lot of subjects. Some of them already have been recorded. I just don't seem to have the time right now to do these mass edits that I used to be able to do, but I'm hoping to get back on track. And one of the things that I try to explain to uh, some of the people that are curious about the show is that this is not a business. This is something that's done for fun. And it's a personal, personal hobby, a way of remembering for me certain subjects. It's kind of like having these conversations about my interest recorded and cataloged and have them there on the data banks, if you will, for some bizarre reason. I know that when it comes to podcasts, sometimes I'll find one that I really enjoy and then I go back and start from the beginning and I kind of move towards an entire period of time of a certain person or a certain group of people that it kind of brings you through a chunk of their lives. By the time you get to the current episode, that show might look completely different. Some of those people might not be around anymore. The show could have collapsed on itself. It's, a lot of these things happen all the time. But for me, it's something that I, I just don't want to let go of it. Not just yet. And I'm just going to keep doing it at my own pace. I won't be able to do the, the weekly shows like I used to. Man, I can't believe I used to. If I were to retire, oh God, I wish I could retire. If I were to retire, yes, I would be able to do something like this you know, full time. There's a lot of shows out there where the content they put out is amazing in terms of the volume of the content. But a lot of these people are also doing this for a living. Some of them, you know, that I, some of the people I follow or I try to follow, it becomes their career. Some of them, I actually somehow managed to make a living out of it. Granted, you know, their spouses are probably bringing in uh, quite a bit of a chunk of their, uh, you know, of their income, which affords them the, the luxury of being able to go in this direction. But that also drives the content. You know, when you're relying on that money, when you're relying on that cash to come in based on people's reactions to the videos, that also tells you or explains how come certain shows take a certain turn, sometimes a little more into the dark side, if you will, because, you know, negativity and controversy and anger sells. It actually makes money. So that's why uh, this show is a little different. I will have every now and then a subject that might be something that upsets me or something that I want to point out, you know, some kind of a unusual circumstance. And I'm, we're going to be talking about a, a couple more, <laughs> hopefully without, you know, destroying ourselves in the process, which it's happened a couple of times where people just, uh, you know, come after us because they don't want to have anyone talk about situations that are not favorable in their direction, you know, alone. But for the most part, you know, I try to make it about things I enjoy. So once again, thank you guys for listening. And we'll see you soon here at Geek Fest Rants. Bye-bye, everybody. Visual effects create the magic that makes people want to go to the movies. Movies are special effects. I leave it to the geniuses at ILM. 
I realized that I was going to have to start a company. We didn't really know what we were doing. George wanted a bunch of guys who didn't know what was impossible. Visual effects would never be the same again. It goes back to that group of unpretentious, brilliant people. We were the Rebel Alliance. Life in Magic, original docuseries streaming July 27th, only on Disney+. Plus. If you would like to subscribe to our show, send us messages, or see video links to some of the topics we talked about today, please visit our homepage at geekfestrants.com or our YouTube channel, Facebook page, or iTunes at Geekfest Rants. I don't know what we're yelling about! Geekfest Rants is produced by Carlos Perone. Copyright 2023. This broadcast is part of the IC Robots Radio Network. Visit icrobots.com for this and many other nerd slash nostalgia related podcasts. You won't be sorry for long.